I have, as you're finding Colossians 3, uh, lived in Chicago a couple of times, and I can tell you, especially when I lived in the city um, and in proximity to uh, people who are from Chicago on the north side who are Cubs fans, uh, Cubs fans are crazy, I believe. And they, especially before, I was living there before they won the World Series, and they were still, you know, it was still a, a distant dream to win the World Series when I lived there for them. But if you talk to a Cubs fan, at any given point during the season, the Cubs were going to get to the series. Every, it didn't matter. They, you could have been almost at the end of the season. They're at the bottom of the, the ranking, and they are going to make it to the series, they believe. They had this fervent hope because they're diehards when it comes to being fans. Uh, Stephanie, my wife, and I lived in Vancouver many years ago, and we were there for a couple years. Uh, we were there during a hockey strike, which was not a lot of fun uh, to be there at that time. People were kind of grumpy for that whole season. But then the next season, when hockey came back, you'd walk around, and people are like coming out of the sides of the taverns just anywhere they can be to watch these games because they were so excited. They were diehards. Of course, we live in a state where we kind of like a football team quite a lot, don't we? Yesterday was hard, but we kind of like a football team quite a lot. And I, I will tell you, we're, we're diehards. Now, I think the pre-Scott Frost period, we maybe got to our low point, but we're still diehards. But here's the thing. Fans can be really into the game. I mean super into the game. Diehards into the game. But at no point does a fan become a coach or a referee or umpire. They're still a fan. On the outside, watching the game, excited about the game, but not actually in the game. But when we look at Colossians 3, 1 through 17, and I'll, I'll just point out, this is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. So if you're, by the way, online viewers, as you're watching from home, pop in the comments, what's your favorite passage of Scripture? You might bless somebody else today as you say that. This is one of my favorites. And in Colossians 3, Paul is talking about setting your mind and your heart on things above where Christ is because he's already won the victory. He's already won the victory over sin, death, and the devil. And Paul's telling us to cast off the secular. He's telling us to cast off off the sinful, and he's telling us to cast off any distractions that would take us away from being transformed Paul tells us an important point. He says, Jesus' desire is that his church would be ruled by peace. That's what he wants for the people who follow Jesus, that his church would be ruled by peace. And that means that his church must call one another to right conduct when we get off and encourage one another when the road gets tough. Both of those things go together to make a church ruled by peace. And unlike fans who are just spectators watching the sport go on, what, what we're told here is that to achieve peace, it takes the role of being in, in an encourager and a trainer role that is like a coach, and it takes us getting into the role of even being a judge sometimes and calling people back to the community standards, an umpire, to saying this is what right and wrong looks like as God's people. That's how peace is achieved among God's people. So let's go to Colossians 3.15. 
Paul says, and we'll take this verse by verse as you're following along. Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Paul here says the word peace. He doesn't say appease. I think that's an important thing to distinguish. Peace that Paul's talking about points back to the, uh, the word shalom, the concept of shalom that's all throughout the Old Testament. That's in the Hebrew mind. That's the mind Paul is thinking in, even though he's writing this in Greek. It means the total welfare and health of the person. It means God's best realized in an individual is what shalom means. But this means more than simply inner tranquility for you and me as an individual who would follow Jesus Christ. What this means, Paul's writing to the church. He's saying this means a healthy people who follow Jesus Christ. A healthy church body who live at peace, at God's best, the healthiest God has for them. That's the aim. That's the goal. It's different than appeasement, which actually is how we often think about peace, I believe, even in a church context. We think about peace in the sense of appeasement, that is like that the waters would be still. But appeasement is simply giving in to the demands of others to avoid conflict. That's not at all what Paul is talking about here. Quite, quite the opposite. Right? To appease within any kind of a community or group of people is to create false community. It's the essential of when your check engine oil light comes on in your car, putting a piece of tape over it to avoid dealing with the reality, right? It seems like a good idea at the time, but eventually the bill comes due and it's going to be pretty pricey. It would have been way less costly to take care of it beforehand. That's what happens. We think it's okay. We put tape over it, but we have false community. We're not really on the same page. Paul says, let the peace of Christ, though, do something specific. Let it rule in your heart. That word rule, in its original, means very much like to umpire your heart. To, to, to make sure that within your heart that Jesus is allowed to judge your own heart and call you back to who you're supposed to be. To right conduct, and to right attitude, and to right action. That your soul would be in tune with the Father's heart. Not the other way around, because we often, we're in cultural waters that want to tell us that it's actually the other way around. That I'm loved, God loves me already as I am, so uh, when, uh, because God loves me, his heart will tune into my heart and we'll be good to go. But it's the complete opposite. No, no, my heart needs to be remade so it's in tune with the Father's heart. It doesn't go the other way. Let us not be fooled. The peace that Paul is talking about is actually spelled out just a little before this. If you go back to verse 12, if we're wondering what kind of peace Paul is talking about, how it looks in the community. Paul says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, verse 12, clothe clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. In false community, those things are going to look like they're there, but they're not. In false community, those things are going to act like we're kind to one another's face, but we gossip behind each other's back. Those things are going to look like we're generous, but we're actually withholding. But we can make the appearance of looking like those things. And it's important to to make that distinction between being the real people of Jesus Christ who live at peace ruled by the peace of Christ, 
rather than false community, because I don't know if you've run into people in life who have been wounded by the church, but I run into them at regular intervals. They've been wounded by both the false community, people who claimed Christ but weren't living it out, and they've been wounded at times by the true community of people who are trying to live it out. We can make mistakes as we try and live at peace. But we're going to make fewer of those errors as we seek to let Christ rule our heart and live by these things, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And we need, to, we need to lament when people are hurt, but the only place they're going to be healed is to come back to the true community. I point that out because the stakes are high when we get this wrong. The stakes are high when we just cover over the check engine light. The stakes are high when we don't deal with the real things that are there and are ruled by peace. People walk away from the lover of their soul. Paul, though, says something further, and it's important to catch in verse 14 then. He says these, these five key pieces, these five virtues here. In verse 14, he says, Over all these virtues that we just read about, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Now that put on, that, that word that's there is, is an image like a, a kind of roots from a brooch that you would use in the ancient world. You kind of wear this overcoat and you could connect it together with a brooch to hold it all together. So the clothing is like uh, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, and the binder is uh, a brooch or love that holds them together. You might, if you wanted to modernize it, say it's the zipper on your coat. That's love. It holds it all together. So it's, it's with you and close and tight. And what we hear here again, as we hear love, let's make sure we're still hearing peace in the right way. Not appeasement, we're hearing peace as rightly ruled community by Jesus Christ and rightly ruled in our heart by Jesus Christ. Because love today, we again hear this the wrong way quite often. Love ends up being, let me do what I want to do and accept me as I am or else you don't love me, but don't ask me to change. That's not at all the case. That's not at all what love is called for here. In fact, as we said, it's being in tune with the heart of the Father, so we're necessarily going to have to change because none of us are God. If we follow Jesus Christ, we're going to have to change in order to be living into that love that God has for us. He loved us enough to want to change us to become the redeemed image of, of him and his son, Jesus Christ. Love plus the peace of Christ calls out bad behavior is what we discover. And so if we're rightly ruled by the peace of Christ, that means we too must be umpires of peace within the body. That's what Paul's telling us, and in the church. That doesn't always feel like a safe place to be. Uh, my uh, grandmother, uh, there's a great story that, that I grew up with uh, when she went to a baseball game, and that wasn't a baseball fan, but went to a baseball game. This would have been in the 1930s or so. There were more raucous affair back then, and she couldn't figure out why everybody was saying chili up during the game. It was kill the ump is what they were yelling, right? There's anytime we watch a game with an umpire or a ref, we get upset at the ref sometimes, don't we? Hey, who gave you the right to make that call? That kind of thing. It's nobody's on your side if you're the ref or the umpire, unless, of course, you know, it's, it's a, the, the winning side of it, I suppose. But somebody's always mad at you, the umpire. The problem is, if, if we're, we, we need to be a community that's distinguished by love, the true love of Christ, 
exemplified in us and the peace of Christ ruling in us, uh, being umpires of peace to call us to who God wants us to be, who God designed us to be, which only comes through Jesus Christ. Because if we don't do that, then we look like people who follow Jesus Christ, but we allow sin to kind of flow through the camp without realizing it or without calling it out. So we look like we have the peace of Christ ruling in us, but we have people who struggle with pornography and can't give it up, and we don't know what to do with that. We don't call it out. We, we look like the community of Christ, and we have people who are struggling with pride, and we just allow it to go on. Or people who are passive-aggressive, and it just continues on. They're nice to your face, but they manipulate everything behind the scenes. We, we, uh, we look like the people of Christ, but we're content with complacency in following Jesus. We look like the peaceful people, peace of, people of Christ, but greed is allowed to just go on. Hard-heartedness is normal, and mission drift occurs. Those are the stakes if we, don't, um, are, if we aren't umpires of peace. Now, not to add insult to injury, but can we talk about yesterday's game just a little bit? Remember the days when we could all go to a game? You have 90,000 coaches sitting in the stands, right? And even more watching at home. None of those people, none of us who coach from the bench put in the sweat equity of our coach. And yesterday we were probably okay with that, right? That was a hard game. Hard to be the coach in that that instance, but you, you do it and you move forward. We're not just to be umpires of peace, peace. But if we're part of the church, we're to be coaches of encouragement. I think that's something we like. We're, we're to be coaches of encouragement. Going on to verse 16. Paul says, Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Paul gives us a couple ways that we can encourage, be coaches of encouragement here and maintain encouragement even in tough times. He says, teach and admonish one another here, which that combines both the idea of umpiring and coaching together uh, to do that. I was thinking as I reflected on this um, of how teaching and admonishing, you know, admonishing is kind of calling you up, basically. You can call it out, but calling up to the standard again. Um, how the Word of God does this. I was reflecting on this a couple years ago when we celebrated our 125th anniversary as the church. Some people sent in some testimonies, and we shared some of those at the time of how they're, they're, they grew in Christ here and how God really got hold of their lives while they were here in great ways. One of the simple stories that, that I remember that stuck out to me was somebody talking about that came in the late 80s. They'd been here for a long time um, that by the time they wrote the story. In the late 80s, they came for the first time, uh, Pastor Steve Bolinsky was the pastor at the time, and they said uh, that during the sermon, um, it was as if Steve was speaking only to them and convicted them right to the heart, the Word of God did. And of course, they stuck around because they wanted more of that. They wanted to be here. They wanted to grow in Christ, but, but the Word of God convicted them in such a way that they were propelled to grow in Christ from that point on, to be called higher to something more like we're supposed to be. I was thinking as well, the teaching and admonishing and the, the level of encouragement that goes on in the church, uh, both 
at this congregation and previous congregations I've served of how small groups have done a good job of what they're supposed to do, which is walking with each other through life. And in some cases, walking as people have struggled with marriages and walking together with those marriages or walking uh, together with people as they've lost a loved one or lost somebody from even their own group and walking together and encouraging one another. And that's what we're supposed to do as coaches of encouragement within the church, to walk with each other through difficult times. Paul says, teach and admonish. That's, in a sense, admonishing when it comes to teaching as well. Uh, we, we need to continue to do a better job of teaching within the church. I think we've slacked off a little bit here in the evangelical world. We've watched a generation or two grow up who even when they want to follow Christ don't actually know a lot of the basics of the faith because we need to do a better job of teaching. It's, it's not useful enough to have studies and, and, uh, and events where people come and we start with the question, what does this Bible verse mean to you? We can get there, but what does this Bible verse mean? That's where we start. And Paul says we need to teach and admonish one another, encourage one another with the faith so we know what we believe so when those tough times come, we can walk together and we know the faith. We know who we follow. And we know what that love looks like. And Paul also says, in another way that we encourage and grow together, is that we sing together. This has been challenged significantly in the COVID-19 period. There's been a lot of articles and conversation about singing uh, with masks, without masks at all. Some churches have chosen not to sing at all. We've chosen to sing with masks on uh, and set up the room so that you can sing. Even if you're not wearing a mask, you're going to be safe in the room. But we do it because it encourages us, among other things. We do it because we glorify God, of course, but it encourages us. It reminds us of what, what, it, what it is, that, who it is we are as we sing. Also, it does something inside as we aim that upward, doesn't it? If, if song didn't do that, we would just speak every word. Song does something. Music does something different with the word. Paul talks about psalms. Literally, that means psalms. It's pretty straightforward. That's the songbook of the church for generations. Go back and read the Old Testament. If you want to know how to pray, uh, if you want to know how to sing well, uh, go through the Psalms. That's the songbook of the church. Paul talks about hymns. He's not using it in the technical sense that we use it now, where we're talking about the stuff in a book versus the modern worship songs on the screen. Paul is using it as spiritual songs basically but not quite the next category spiritual songs he's talking about songs that would have been essentially written or received for the specific person per purpose of praising god not so much uh, modern hymns versus old hymns versus modern worship music versus the choruses of the 60s now it's all lumped together is what it would be if we were to take it in paul's understanding and then finally, he talks about songs from the Spirit. That is to say, when you bring it into the context of worshiping God, not using stuff of the secular realm, but using stuff that's written for God or with the intent of worshiping God. That's what he's talking about there. It's kind of a catch-all for anything else that's not in the other two categories, basically. That's, we encourage one another even with song, even as we sing together. Finally, verse 17, Paul says, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I don't know if you noticed, in every verse of those three verses, Paul said, be thankful, have gratitude in your heart, 
and give thanks. Do you think Paul wanted us to catch something important there? There's an interesting cultural upside to the time that we live in right now. Even people who don't follow Jesus, who are outside of the church, have recognized the importance of gratitude and thanksgiving. They've recognized that there's a valuable health benefit to being thankful rather than being the alternate options that you could have, being grumpy, bitter, all those things. People recognize that there's something healthy about being grateful. Of course, the downside is you have to think about who you're thanking when it comes to thanksgiving and gratitude. Uh, you know, it's, it's one thing. We can thank other people. That's important. We ought to do that. That's part of what Paul's talking about here. Uh, but I know I was watching the show Alone uh, recently, which is where they drop survival experts out in the wilderness and see how long they can last. Very interesting show. Uh, but some of those people are good at trapping and hunting things, and then they thank the animal. Well, why? We actually thank God for his provision is what we do. Be thankful. Be thankful to God. Be thankful to God that you're alive today. Be thankful to God that he sent his son for you. Be thankful to God that he wants you to be something more than you are now, which is the redeemed image of him. Be thankful to God. Paul says then, no, don't just be thankful, but over all these things, he says, put on love. Yes, put on love. So, but, but the thing is, we're never going to be able to be a loving people, a compassionate, kind, patient, humble people, if we're not actually a thankful and grateful people. That's the, that's the pathway to get there. Right? If, if we're not thankful and grateful and thankful and grateful this way first and foremost, we're going to be miserable coaches and bad umpires of peace. We're not going to do a good job of walking with each other in hard times. What's going to ha- what happens in those cases is it's much like the family that drives together to go to the zoo or the amusement park or wherever it is, and they're, they're excited to get there, but when they get to the parking lot, that's the daunting challenge. And it's hard to find the parking spot in a big amusement park or something like that. And there are people pointing in different directions. And then you've got the kids and, and everybody else in the car is like, no, go this way. But he said go that way. To go to that parking spot, this. And by the time you get to the parking spot, everybody's frazzled. And dad looks back and he's like, okay, we're going to go in and we're going to have a good time. Because everybody's frazzled by that point. You're not convinced, right, that it's going to be a good time. We're not a thankful people. We're not going to do any of this other stuff well. The implications of this, I know it's COVID season. I know it's tough to be the church. It feels like it quite often. But really simply, if I were to challenge you with something from this, be an umpire of peace, be a coach of encouragement in some way. So what I mean uh, when I say be an umpire of peace, I don't mean call up somebody today and say, I'm going to be very judgmental towards you about this and this. I'm saying make sure you're walking in a relationship with other people in this church where you can call each other to be like Christ. And, and if you don't have those relationships or they're not established or they're falling away a little bit right now, reestablish those relationships and rekindle those so you can call one another back. And it can be very simple, right? If you're in a relationship with somebody and, and you recognize, you know what, I know that you've been trying to do some scripture reading in the morning that's been challenged or for whatever reason that's gotten off track, let's be accountable together to get you back on track. It can be that simple. Those kinds of things. Or I know that you have, you know, you're praying for your sister. Can we do it together? Right? When it comes to being a coach of encouragement, 
Um, and even to express gratitude, I would just add that to it. Um, go ahead and write a card or a letter or a text or an email or something to somebody else today or drop baked goods on the door, whatever. Pick someone from the body of Christ, especially somebody that you haven't connected with in a while, and encourage them today. They may very well need it. You may very well need it too. Be a coach of encouragement. Be an umpire of peace. Get in the game. It's hard right now with COVID-19, but get in the game and stay in the game. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you that you are loving and kind towards us, and I pray that we'd be a grateful people. Through and through, from top to bottom, that we'd be thankful and grateful for all that you've done, that we would recognize your goodness within the body of Christ, that we'd recognize your goodness in others around that are trying to follow you faithfully, and that we would be able to then uh, show that gratitude and grace to other people within the body and to those outside that we'd be a living testimony to your goodness to us. Lord, help us be that testimony. Help us be loving. Help us be umpires of peace, coaches of encouragement, called back to you, called home. Pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, who loves us. Amen.